Today I'm talking with Mickey Medji, a black South African woman who lives in Cape Town, a sex trade survivor and a sex trade abolitionist. She wants the world to introduce a model, a legislative model, first introduced in Sweden in 1999, that decriminalises the prostituted person but criminalises the pimping, the sex buying and the other exploitative aspects of the sex trade. And Mickey's had some success. She's been battling in Cape Town against those that have been pushing very, very hard for some time to fully legalise all aspects of prostitution, including brothel owning, pimping, paying for sex. And Mickey knows what she's talking about. She was prostituted for nine years. And since she actually got out of the sex trade, she's been working on these issues and often directly with women who are in prostitution currently or who have managed to escape. And we're here in Dublin, in the Republic of Ireland, meeting with our good friend and colleague, Rachel Moran, who set up Space International, of which Mickey is a, a member and I'm a board member, back in 2012 to give a voice to those women that had been abused in the sex trade and who are the real experts in this issue. Rachel is the author of the best-selling political memoir, Paid For, A Journey Through Prostitution. And Mickey, Rachel and I have spent the weekend strategizing, writing, talking about our next moves in countries that are looking to introduce the abolitionist model and seek to eliminate, eradicate prostitution from society. And also how to respond to those countries that still think that legalising or decriminalising pimping, brothel owning, sex buying could ever help the prostituted person or society in general. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. I have founded an organization called Survivor Empowerment and Support Program um, with a vision to create an economically, socially and legally enabling environment for the abolition of the sex trade. And so what I've been doing is um, we're raising an awareness, you know, and also um, we are trying to undo the damage that has been done by the pro-prostitution lobbyists and I think we are making headways. Um, we had the Commission for Gender Equality uh, endorsing and supporting publicly, even on their website, the, the decriminalization of prostitution and its recognition as work. And currently they are revisiting and reviewing that particular decision. Um, they want to issue a new statement. So consultations are happening in South Africa. And then we also um, had, um, you know, the ANC, uh, in one conference, in, which is the African National Congress, the ruling p political party in South Africa, also endorsing the decriminalization of prostitution. And they have issued a statement that, that they'd like to revisit that decision as well. So there's a lot of discussions happening in that country. And I'm currently actively trying to lobby um, the Confederation of Uni Trade Unions because they also publicly endorsed that statement but I've been speaking to people and a few of the other trade unions who are affiliating to the Federation to to reconsider and I can say confidently 
uh, individually now people are starting to want to you know revisit and review that decision people are feeling they were not informed much and yeah there's yeah. well you were exploited in prostitution in south africa for nine years weren't you yes. and then you managed to escape Yes. And your first job, the first job you were given, was to to actually lobby for the blanket decriminalisation of the sex trade. In yes. fact, a lot of people misunderstand this, don't they? So we can just explain now. When you tell people that we're against the blanket decriminalisation, they think that we mean we think the women should be arrested yes. or any prostituted person should be arrested. What, in fact, we mean is that we wish for prostituted people to not be criminalised yes. and, in fact, supported out of the industry, if that's what they wish. But we want the pimps and the sex buyers, the punters, as we call them in yes. the UK, uh, to be criminalised in order to eradicate, well, the normalisation of prostitution, I suppose. So t talk us through the journey that you were on when you first got out of prostitution and when sweat which is a pro-prostitution lobby group, as we would call them. And what does it stand for? Um, Sex Worker Education and Advocacy Task Force. And they're based in Cape Town. Yes. And Sweat, in fact, gave you a job. Talk us through that. Okay, so when I met Sweat, I was still in the streets, obviously. For two years, they were trying to get me to come to their offices. And I will tell you honestly, I didn't understand why I should be fighting for rights because... I didn't view prostitution as work. Even the, the ideology or terminology of sex work, they brought it to me. For me, it was a means of survival. I needed to fend for my children. So one time, uh, there was a one woman who was murdered whom we used to stand with in the same streets and sweat in this particular moment offered um, to support um, all women to go to this woman to pay our last respects with transport. That is how I ended up at the sweat offices. In fact, they said they would pay for her funeral, I think. They they didn't pay for the funeral, but we... So as Africans, um, I don't know how, how people do things in the West. When somebody dies, you go and pay your, your last respects by showing face, for, for starters. I mean, if I have a bereavement or if I die myself, people who knew me are expected to come pouring... Yes to my house. So we didn't, as we women in the streets, some of us, I mean, some women have never been to my place. So we didn't know where Nomateko lived. We just knew of the area. So, so Sweat then volunteered to give us, they had a van to say, everybody who wants to go there, come and meet up at our offices because it would be central. And then we would be driven to the place. And because um, this traditional tradition or culture of this um, ritual of on a daily basis going to this place and holding a, a church or prayer service at this particular person's house happens between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. So then afterwards we would still need to be transported. So they were going to sort that out. So that's how I ended up at the sweat offices because now we needed to, um, you know, convene there and then be transported to this woman's place. Her name was Noma Teko. So when I got there, being the curious person that I am, there were, you know, write-ups on the walls. You can imagine, I mean, in an organization, they've got posters and yes. stuff like that. In fact, I've been to the sweat offices when I visited Cape Town. Yes. 
and I, I, I saw the posters. Yes. But describe so, it yeah. for, for so, our listeners. But, um, and that where you were, you, you were in observatory, but that was when they were still in community house. So I saw these posters and stuff like that, and I started, you know, reading up. Um, and initially, I thought, well. If, if there was going to be a law, obviously I didn't want police harassing me because I had a ton of experience in that. So I thought legalization initially for me would have worked. And this was coming from me being a mother, thinking that, you know, if it's legalized, it's going to be at a certain area away from the children. Because remember, we were standing in the street and I used to be, um, you know, uh, do uh, my, my operations in a street called Fort Trekker Road on the northern suburbs. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's within a residential area and some women, I, nev I never used to flush, but I used to see maybe families passing by and women wouldn't have known who's in the vehicle, they would be flashing and I thought children shouldn't be seeing these things. Also, um, because when panthers would pay us for sex, if we were going to be doing something inside a vehicle, then we would park in school parks and people would use uh, leave used condoms. And I felt this is unfair to the children because this is what they are being greeted by tomorrow morning when they come to school. So initially I thought, because I didn't have an understanding, and remember Sweat, it was not... They, 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 are, they are just promoting the total decriminalization of prostitution as a solution to all the problems that we are having. And problems vary from police harassment, um, and then there is also murders, and, or, or, or you know... And who are murdering the women? Because it's not the police officers, is no, it? No, no, no. In fact, the worst that I've experienced um, in terms of violence from the police officers was um, being pepper sprayed. Pepper spray. Yes, the, right. yeah, that's the, the worst that I have personally experienced. Yes. I don't know of any woman who had been murdered by the police officers, but I know of many women who were murdered by the panthers. Right, and the pimps, presumably. Y yes, some pimps, yes. And, and, uh, but I also know, even if they were not murdered, but I know of a lot of women who are being exploited physically and, you know, abused by their pimps and emotionally and also financially. Pimps will be taking things away from these women and things like debt bondage and stuff like that. Like you stay with me, so you're going to be working here and I take all the proceeds of the money. I was fortunate because I, I never had a pimp, but I had, um, there were attempts to recruit me from pimps in the area, which I declined. But um, effectively what you're saying is that Sweat put all the problems down that prostituted people face yes. to the fact that the police are criminalising the women yes. when in fact the violence, the abuse, the exploitation is the fault of the buyers, the yes. demand. Yes. And why then do they think that the problems faced by prostituted people would disappear if the punters and the pimps were suddenly perfectly legitimised that nothing that they did was in fact against the law. Why would that help prostituted people? It wouldn't actually. I mean, now now that I know of it, and one thing that I would like to mention, Julie, is that I've um, discovered that prostitution is not, is not a sustainable source of income where, like any other um, profession, like they would like to promote it because... Initially, when you are new and young and fresh in prostitution, you make more money. And the longer you stay and the older you become, 
you 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 have you have less of a value. I remember when I first started, a, a, a thousand rands for me would be something that I would be able to make in a couple of hours. But now, the longer I stayed there, uh, a thousand rand would be an effort, quite an effort. Take, take, it would mm -hmm. take me some days to actually make this. So somebody once said, and it, it's absolutely true, isn't it, that prostitution is pretty much the only um, so-called job that women do where it's instant demotion, where, in fact, you don't go from the streets to a high-class hotel to an escort agency. Um, in fact, the women are instantly on the road downhill from yeah. so-called high-end prostitution to um, to street-based. Street and depending if you were to be to be hooked um, or or addicted um, to some sort of substance, uh, be it alcohol or drugs. And again, um, you know, I was fortunate, but I've seen a lot of women whom I used to stand with in the streets who have been addicted to alcohol, to, to drugs, and who've just, you know, you, you know they've just deteriorated in, in their lives and comparing their beauty physically as well. It's really appalling, isn't it? Because people are duped into thinking that decriminalisation, which is very, very similar to legalisation, in fact, decriminalisation, such as practised in New Zealand, is even more of a Wild West, in a way, because, you know, usually there's not even a licensing requirement in brothels. And, and the likes of Sweat say things like, blanket decriminalisation is the only way forward to protect the safety and human rights of sex workers, because they call prostituted people sex workers. And they don't have any evidence in fact the evidence is to the contrary of what they say how why do you think organizations such as sweat want to decriminalize pimping brothel owning and and buying sex i believe um and i don't have evidence of this but this is what i'm thinking it has something to do with uh, and i'm analyzing the situation looking at south africa context contextually and also so just looking at south africa historically you know with our, our appetite our colonialism i think it, it's a racial fact and it's and in south africa you cannot talk about race and divorcing class uh, because those go hand in hand but i also believe that they are working in favor of the pimps and brothel keepers. why I think those those who have the so-called power now and who are making money or who are capitalizing on this matter are on the bodies of poor black women because because those are the majority of those who are being prostituted in that country. Yes, you do have some white people being uh, you know being prostituted, but it's more black women uh, than any other race and poor black women from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, some of them South Africans and some of them are migrants. So people who are actually very vulnerable. But another thing that I've also found by talking to women, it amazes me to find that Sweat says claims that people are choosing freely because I remember while I was standing in the streets, I, I don't remember one woman who said to me, as we were just talking, not, not necessarily talking for sweat formally, but when we were having conversations, I would share, let's say if I'm standing with a Zandile or what, I don't recall one woman who told me, I grew up wanting to be the best paid 
sex worker ever. Mm. Remember when we when we when we do careers, I mean as we grow, if you if you're wanting to be a lawyer, obviously you don't want to be employed all, all your life. You want to to study, become a lawyer, work for, for a law firm, eventually start up your own law firm. I, I don't recall one woman who said my plan was to always start off as a sex worker and then eventually open the biggest brothel. Maybe have a billboard by the airport saying, if you want sex, or oh, go to Mickey's place in Kailicha or where. I don't recall ever coming across mm. one woman who said this to me. I mean, what, what, the one thing that I found that I, I suppose, concluded when I was researching my book on prostitution was that these NGOs that advocate for blanket decriminalisation are well-funded. They usually, more often than not, began as health-based projects looking to reduce numbers um, of HIV cases, to, um, to advocate on behalf of gay men with HIV, and then that extended into... A prostituted women in the main and that the funding was quite lucrative and that of course in order to maintain their funding base they would sign up to a particular ideology because the money was coming from uh, sexual libertarian organizations is that something that you found that they have not just that their insistence that decriminalising prostitution is more ideological than practical. And, uh, yeah, and I, I'm glad you asked me this question because my road to cro crossing from them to an abolitionist actually was informed by exactly what you're asking. Because um, uh, Sweat, so then I worked at Sweat, and in it, initially for me to go and work at Sweat, was a little bit of selfishness as well on my part because my children were growing. I had young children who were asking, Mommy, where do you work? Where was I going to take them? So when Sweat offered me a job, I felt I could normalize. And remember, people even in my area were starting to talk because, like I said, this road where I was operating, some people had passed there and had a glimpse of me and went to the township and started spreading some rumors that, I was, a, a, you know, a prostitute, and I didn't want this known. I, and I wasn't ashamed because my family was going to criminalize me or, you know, send me to jail. I was, um, I, I didn't want this to be known because I was ashamed of what I was doing. I didn't see it as work, even if it was criminalized tomorrow. In fact, calling me a sex worker doesn't make me feel any better than when you call me a war. It's, for me, those are all the same. So I don't know why a person would glorify and glamorize this position. So when Sweat offered me this opportunity, um, because I happened, my mother was a domestic worker, so I grew up in, I went to good schools at some point, so I've got a good command of the English language. So they saw an opportunity, like a black girl that they can polish, and they actually, you know, invested a lot of resources, I mean, in building my capacity so that I'm able to speak. But now, as they did this, I didn't just take the spoon feeding of what they were saying. I was reading other things and now I knew about other legal options. And when I came to understand, 
at some point, what I did was to take all these things that I said I, I, I heard from women, the dreams women had in the streets, and my, including my dreams, and I listed them, and then I took each of these four legal options, starting with decriminalization, legalization, criminalization, and now eventually the abolitionist approach, to say which one would actually facilitate all these things, or, or most of these things being accessible. So what would cause the police to get off my back and stop harassing me and, you know, uh, obviously decriminalization ticked the box and obviously the abolitionist uh, approach. But then I'm also just, I also just got worried that if um, our government recognizes prostitution as work, uh, then there won't be any need to support women to exit. So in other words, I mean, I'm a journalist, I don't need an exit strategy yes. to change... If how I earn money. Yes, I just you, leave. If, if you want to be a teacher, you just need to save up money and go and study, go, go back to school right. and become a teacher. Or if you thought you now no longer wanted journalism but you wanted to be a doctor or a nurse, whatever, you would need to, to save up. I mean, even as a farm worker or a domestic worker, yes. you wouldn't be assisted to do that. So I felt this is unfair. But the other thing is that I, I've... I've picked up that some women were, were in prostitution because they couldn't work. They were undocumented citizens of the Republic of South Africa. So they had no papers. No they ideas, they, no they couldn't get a legitimate job. Yes. And um, I've been assisting a few women because that woman wouldn't be able to leave, let alone even have a bank account. Where are they from that mainly? Um, no, no, South Africans, actually. There right. are migrants, but I have cases um, that I've now, now recently solved like as I left, as I boarded the aeroplane last week, I can even show you an email of the conversation that I have. This particular case is a 24-year-old woman. She's turning 25 in December. She has a toddler who's, who has a disability. I'm not sure what that condition is called, something like uh, autism or something. Uh, but, but, I mean, this child can't walk. They can't eat solid, very hard, solid food. They have to eat soft food. They have to be on diapers. They are supposed to be, by now, at their age, to be off diapers. This woman, um, uh, she, can't, she can't afford to leave prostitution because she herself is undocumented. Now, now that child of hers is undocumented. She, she can't access social support, social relief support. Well, in that case, let me ask you a question that's always put to those of us that wish to abolish prostitution. So obviously you and I and many others. They say, why should you take the opportunity away from that poor, uh, undocumented woman who needs to support her child what good would it do to abolish prostitution? Because that would mean that she and her child would go hungry. What do you say to that? I normally say, let's take the resources that we are so actively investing in trying to make prostitution safe, in inverted commas, and saying this because it can never be safe, to say the amount of money, the millions of rands that we are investing in condoms, why can't we invest that money when sending this woman who wishes for better education to school. Right, okay, that's really irritating because your eloquence was disturbed there by a golf cart going <laughs> past the window. But it's okay, yeah. I'm sure everyone so can hear why, what you were saying. Why, why can't we take those resources and, like, the South African National AIDS Council has a huge budget 
for condoms and lubricants um, to be delivered. And one thing I said I would do for, for Rachel, and I can share this with you, I want to go back there's a, a, near my place, um, a, a spot where women are uh, being prostituted. I was in Cape Town, yes. In Cape Town, um, to, on Baden Powell Drive along to Stellenbosch. I don't live very far from there. So I want to take a drive on Monday and go to this spot. I want to take pictures of these condoms. Because they are not being used, believe you me. They are lying at this place. So I'm going to take pictures of the landscape of, the, of this area for you to see where they are. And then just to see on the ground how these condoms are just wasted. So it goes again to say these people are not concerned about the well-being of prostituted persons. They just want to tick the box and keep on getting their funding because it's a lucrative, yes. as you mentioned. Well, you, you know, you talk about boxes of condoms and how much money that costs to distribute them and that condom use is, is pushed, uh, promoted as the answer to sexual health issues that women in prostitution face. And I've been in many legal brothels talking to the pimps, the punters, the women in Germany, in Nevada, in the US, in, in New Zealand. And there's a, a spot um, called Sonagachi in India where Bill and Melinda Gates put millions uh, of pounds investment into um, condom use amongst prostituted women there. And of course, the, the buyers, the sex buyers, simply offer more money to the women not to use condoms. Not to use condoms. Now, they then poured loads of money into training those women that were able uh, to educate other women about condom use. And it was ridiculous. It was a complete failure. Because the women, yes, were told, if you don't use condoms, you can have unwanted pregnancies, many HIV, HIV STIs. STIs, exactly. And, of course, they understood that. But the more desperate the women are, the more likely they are to take more money to not use those condoms. So it's ridiculous to suggest that. And then you have, and I know this is the case in South Africa, in New Zealand, PrEP is now being pushed by brothel owners so that women in those brothels are taking PrEP, which means that... The punters know that they're not going to contract HIV from the women. So the women are under pressure to have to have unsafe sex, which leaves them open to unwanted pregnancy, STIs, and all of the other things that PrEP d can't prevent. But, I mean, this also has, boils down to pharmaceutical companies. I'm wondering if they have an, a hand also in this, because... This is pushing business for them. If everybody is taking pre-exposure prophylaxis or treatment as prevention and are using condoms, lubricants, who is manufacturing these things? So where is all the money going? So it's capitalism at the same time. But interesting enough, you said you were talking about um, desperation and during the course of the week, I was speaking uh, about, we were just informing about the times when I... Uh, actually was persuaded to not use a condom by a punter during my time in the street. This was not motivated by money, actually, for me. at some point, I was telling Rachel that, that at some point I was scared because this man would not tell me while he's picking me up at Four Tracker Road that he doesn't want to use a condom. We would have driven to a bush somewhere very far. It's me and him. And I was not sure if my no would you would trigger him 
to become aggressive. So you were scared to say no? Yes. So I would just, you know, oblige and do it because mm. I, I wanted to save my life because we know of situations. I, I have known, I, I have known of situations where women were beaten up, you know, were murdered, were hurt, were harmed by panthers or were just, you know, abandoned in the middle of nowhere but because they refused to do as a panther said. Yes. Well, it's ridiculous to suggest that condoms are the answer to sexual health issues, bearing in mind the amount of rape. Um, and, you know, obviously there are, there are women in prostitution that describe the sex act as paid rape. And I have a lot of sympathy for that view. And yet, supposedly... The answer is in the condom. Now, The Lancet, which is a very, very prestigious publication, um, pretty much every single registered doctor on the land will have a copy of The Lancet and other medical professionals, scientists and the like, interested in, in the health of human beings. And in 2014, it was given a big grant um, I think, again, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, to look at whether or not, and I think they, they knew what their conclusion would be before they began the research, whether or not blanket legalisation or decriminalisation of the sex trade globally would reduce cases of HIV. Now, they concluded that it would. Okay. Let me explain what their uh, findings were. Then we can pull it apart. Based only on paper research, so looking at studies that had already been done and then modelling by which they kind of decided that A must lead to B must lead to C. These scientists found that if you completely decriminalise every aspect of prostitution, several things will happen. First of all, there'll be 100% condom use because prostituted people won't be stopped by the police, um, searched and then arrested as prostitutes because they found condoms on them, right? And we know that that does happen in some countries at some times, but, but hear me through. So, in other words, that would lead to 100% condom use because no prostituted person would be worried about carrying condoms because the police would not be able to use that against them in court. It would also lead to zero violence from the Johns, the punters, and I'm not quite sure how they reached this conclusion, but it was something like they would not be on edge in case the police arrested the prostituted woman and therefore him. It would lead to... Um, Excuse me, so what they're actually saying is that panthers are murdering and are being violent towards prostitution. Because of the pressure from the police arresting. Of... Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. But but there's more. So they then said it would also lead to 100% engagement by the women in sexual health clinics because there would no longer be any stigma involved in prostitution because everybody was decriminalised and therefore within 10 years HIV would be reduced. New cases of HIV would fall by about between 35 and 45%. Something around that figure. Significant. Significant drop in HIV cases. This hasn't actually happened 
where there is blanket decriminalisation in New Zealand, for example. It hasn't happened under legalisation because, of course, where there's more prostitution, which always happens when you destigmatize it for the punters and the pimps. If you de- if you legalize or decriminalize something, there's more of it. And so where there's more prostitution, there's more HIV because there's more rape, there's more violence, there's more desperation, there's more fear and therefore less condom use. So every single newspaper in the UK and beyond picked up on this assertion that blanket legalisation or decriminalisation would lead to a massive drop in new cases of HIV and that led many many people ordinary citizens to believe that that is the way forward. I don't believe for once that is the way forward and um, so I'm, 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 I'm very I don't know how these people reach their conclusions first but sometimes they confuse me because they, they, they themselves in South Africa, Swanke Gender Justice, an organization that supports SWEAT with this advocacy, and they're one of the front runners, released a study where they were looking at the nine factors that causes men more likely to beat or rape a woman. Interesting enough, four of those factors are men who have uh, you know, be, be many multiple concurrent partners. Of course, a panther will, will be having sex with me, you, others, everybody, including his wife or his partner. And then, um, pant, uh, then they said men with sexual entitlement. I believe that men who purchase sex do so because the, these are men that do not want to take no. Because, I mean, if they ask me in, in, in the house and I said no, well, a prostituted person is... I will will not say no if the money is there and he wants sex it is readily provided for him well prostitution yes. is exactly yes. about sexual entitlement yes. by the man by the buyer yes and then the, the, the this gets more interesting so i started with the lesser interesting ones and then men who engage in transactional sex where they exchange materialistic stuff so we have a, a phenomenon in south africa a recent phenomenon called blesser blesser relationships uh, it, it's it's something that looks like sugar daddy but the difference um here is that it's no of or it, it uh, the blesser blesser has nothing to do with age even though uh, the trend is older men dating younger women you know and uh, not dating but having sex with younger women in exchange of buying them fancy phones sometimes renting them apartments clothes you know and stuff like that so those men, again, they have control and the power, as we know. So that's the transactional sex. And then men who purchase sex are 2.8 more, more likely than men who don't to beat or rape a woman. But hang on a minute. This is, because this all sounds absolutely right. And as feminists that campaign to end male violence, we know that this sounds... Absolutely spot on. But why would a pro-prostitution group that supports the notion of men paying for sex, why would they actually release this research? Swanky Gender Justice is an organisation that initially was um, founded to educate men, to promote positive masculinity. And I don't know why they they did this study, rightfully so, and their findings yes. are accurate. But I don't know why they released it. It's out there, it's online, it's out there. Well, they need to, they need to actually then take note of their findings and campaign 
for the eradication of prostitution and campaign to criminalise the men that pay for sex. Surely they should change Discourage their tack now. Discourage men to, to in, from engaging in this behaviour yes. that causes them more likely to beat or rape a woman, especially in a country in South Africa where femicide, you, you know, is declared as a, a national crisis that we need to de deal with it ASAP. I mean, we have a woman being murdered and being killed in that country every three hours. Yeah. A, a woman is murdered. But then, recently then, their friends, Sweat, released a study again talking about prostituted persons' murders. And they, they specifically focused on female sex workers, as they call them, uh, so, so prostituted women, and trans women. So not just, so, so more um, female prostituted persons then, they said in this study, they found that prostituted women were 18 times more likely to experience violence and be murdered than the women of the same age, race, from the general population who are not prostitutes. And who is murdering the women? The Panthers. The, these women are murdered by the men who purchase sex. I don't know of a woman, for me, in my nine years in the streets, I don't know of a woman who was murdered by police officers. So why then does Sweat campaign to decriminalise the, pur the purchasing of sex? Why does it campaign to end the stigma on men that pay for sex? Why does it campaign to completely destigmatize the entire sex trade? It's the money, I think. It's the funding that they seek, seek to, 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 yeah, they want to keep the funding. But at the same time, I believe um, the pharmaceutical companies have a, a, a deal in this. I don't know. Maybe we need to look into this. We, we need to look at their involvement. Because at the end of the day, they are the ones that are getting money. But um, also, um, as a feminist, I'm, I'm, I'm bound to think that you know, we've, you know, we've come a long way in the feminist movement, long before my time, your time perhaps, where you remember, you know, marital rape was not, um, you know, um, criminalised before. And so now... Well, we, in the UK, it was only criminalised in 1992. Yes. Thanks, uh, thanks yes, to feminists. Yes. So men, which leaves then that men, this is the only frontier men can use to access and commodify and objectify women's bodies because marital rape has been criminalized. Remember, um, I remember when I was a teenager, you know, date rape wasn't seen as rape because I agreed to go on a date with him and I went and had dinner at his place or wherever. And so why would I be crying rape? Because I was with him, you know, assuming that my taking his drinks, his dinner, was my way of saying yes, that he can have sex with me. But today that is criminalized. So all of those things criminalized live on men w with this option only of go going into, you know, women's bodies and doing what, what they want to do for their own sexual gratification. Remember, this is not for the enjoyment of the women. It's for the enjoyment of these people. And Sweat has a tendency of arguing that let women do what they want to do with their bodies. As if, as if when you are being prostituted, you are doing something to your own body. No, no, no. Actually, it's not like John will come and you will tell John, John, I will stroke your chin and you will pay me. No, John comes and says, Mickey, I'm going to pay you because this is what I want to do to your body. So the, again, they, they are twisting this as if 
women are doing what they want to do with their bodies but why in, in, in actual fact things are being done to women's bodies by other people right and this is a very clever move by the pro sex trade industry lot because they have reframed it as though this is all about women's choice women's empowerment women's freedom so therefore they try to discredit feminists like us by saying why would you tell women what to do with their own bodies that's the opposite of feminism and they dare to even equate it with the right for for free and safe abortion i mean as if this is about freedom of women as if this is not about the men it's about the entitlement and the choice of the men we know the women have the least choice the men have the most choice but they've reframed it as though it's anti-feminist to be against the sex trade when i went to do a talk not that long ago earlier this year to york university a very elite universities in the north of england some of the students decided to protest me because I support the Nordic model, which I know you do, where the demand is criminalised and the women, anyone in the sex trade, is decriminalised. So they decided, <clears throat> and in fact said in their pre-publicity, Bindle has devoted her entire career to the, um, the murder of sex workers. It was another word, and I can't quite <clears throat> remember it at the moment, but genocide. The mass genocide of sex workers. Because I support an initiative that helps women out of the sex trade, that criminalises the punters and the like. Um, so they, they now have they've invented this word called whorephobic, that we are against the women. Talk to me a little bit about that. Did you find that when you were at, at Sweat, that they talked about feminists in this way? Yes, um, so the, 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 the ideology of feminism that is being promoted at, at SWET is liberal feminism. It, it, comes, it, it, yeah, it comes from liberalism in, in politics of the ideologies. And, and, and I only recently was able to identify the different ones when I went back to school to study adversity um, eventually. Because it had always been my dream, but I I didn't get the opportunity. So and um I you I took politics as a as a more as, as a subject, and I came across you you know the different types of feminism, and I saw that I can clearly say that liberalism because liberalism doesn't work especially in a country like South Africa. It it's, it benefits the upper class. Um, it benefits the elite. You know it. Because yeah, it assumes, that type of liberalism assumes that we all start on an even playing yes, field, doesn't yes. it? Yes, Like, for instance, in South Africa, like in Cape Town, for instance, we have four institutions, universities. If we were to say under liberalism, we, we are fighting for access to quality, edu higher education for everybody for free, then tomorrow the government says, okay, we will pay. Here, universities are there. Just go there. They have, liberalism ends there. They they divorce the personal from the politics because they do not and then see look at the fact that Mickey now lives in Kailicha, universities are in Stellenbosch, Belleville, Cape Town, Mowbray. I would, which is a long way. So they are assuming that I am equal to the child who lives in Rondebosch who can just walk to um, to UCT. And that or, you can afford the books and that you can... Yes. 
have the time or even the, the, the internet access they are not looking at all these other things that may hinder me my progress or you know I, I may not be able to deliver even though it's there but I'm not able to to study because I can't get to university because I don't have the money to come from Kailicha and to go to these places I can't study at home because I don't have access to internet or maybe even electricity they are not looking at those things so radical feminism then comes from the notion that you don't just deal with a, with, the, with the person and not deal with the politics or blanket the politics and divorce it from the person. The person and the politics go hand in hand so that you, you, you don't divorce these things. So I found that. But another thing that was interesting to me um, that I, what I was saying earlier on, at some point, um, I, I don't know if you know about um, the Kylie case where Sweat took a case to the CCMA, which is the body that looks at uh, labour issues. What does CCMA stand for? It's the arbitration, the, it's a commission of arbitration, but we can look that up. But it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a body in South Africa where if you are not happy with how you are being treated by your employer, whether they dismiss you, you, you take it to them. The CCMA said they will not hear Kylie's case. Kylie was dismissed from a brothel for uh, refusing to use a condom. Uh, not not to use a condom for refusing not to use a condom. Right. The hunter was demanding that. Right. So she was dismissed by the brothel keeper, and so she challenged this. So the CCMA then said, um, "No, we can't hear this because it's illegal in this country to be in prostitution to be, to begin with. So we won't get involved." So when when Sweat heard of this and the Women's Legal Center, um, a legal entity that represents women in South Africa, with I mean gives women legal representation in, in cases of human rights, then they took it upon themselves. It took them six years. So it was taken to the Labor Relations Appeal Court, which then ruled that even though prostitution was illegal in the country, there was an an employment um, agreement between the two parties, Kylie and the brothel keeper. So the CCMA had to hear this, but there was a settlement outside of court. But but what they what they failed to understand that look at that marriage. She was fired because she had exercised her right to refuse not to use a condom. Mm -hmm. But because I mean, obviously, if you are working. Here in this hotel, the customer is always right. Anything that we de we demand, we are the customers here. We are always right. A person may be fired because we are expressing that when I asked this um the, this housekeeper to make my bed, she refused. So she therefore they 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 may be dismissed. They were trying to treat it that way, but they were not looking at what Kylie was actually protesting. And sometimes I doubt if Sweat is listening to themselves when they speak. Sometimes I doubt if they do actually sit down and listen to themselves or well, they care about the things that they are saying in public. Yeah, because, you, you know, what you have is a situation that goes to an employment tribunal, um, which often should be in a criminal court. So what that punter tried to do to Kylie in that brothel in South Africa was put her life in danger. She was working in... She was being prostituted in circumstances which are very different from, as you say, working in a hotel. And that happened in New Zealand as well, where the New Zealand Prostitute Collective, that also claim blanket decriminalisation, they claim that this gives women employment rights. Well, of course it doesn't, because what women go to the tribunal for is what 
they should be witnesses in a criminal court about. In other words, violence from the brothel owner, um, kidnapping, being locked in a room, um, having a punter remove the condom during sex, which is rape. Mm. And they go to tribunals about this and the tribunal hears it. These men should be in court. Outside of a brothel, you would have the police called in, not an employment tribunal. Actually, it's interesting that you're mentioning New Zealand. While I was still at Sweat, I actually went to New Zealand. Um, this was in 2011. New Zealand decriminalized um, 2003. So when I went there, I spoke to women who were being prostituted prior to 2003 and who are still being prostituted. Now, guess who benefits from this? Because we, these women said to me, we had moved from working, from working in the streets after decriminalization to working in brothels because we understood even though the police could no longer harass us, we were still, still vulnerable to men's violence. It was more safer, according to them, to work in brothels and co collectively. Now, who benefits? It means that pimps and brothel keepers were have, having more of, of a pool of women that they can now control and make money and capitalize yes. from. But also the other thing, the strange thing in South Africa, we have the, the Federation of, of Trade Unions, um, being, you know, they are adamant that they want to ban labor brokering in the country. So, you know, you, you know, try employment agencies. Uh, I don't know if you have those in the UK where you have a, a, an employment agency. So I would source people. This hotel will come to me and say, we want 20 women to come right. to become housekeepers. So I put this, I tell the hotel, you pay me, let's say, a 50 rand per woman, and I give these women 20 rand per woman. So I'm making money out of them. Kosatu has declared this as modern day slavery and inhumane, insultive, and you know, capitalized the sale of bodies. They say they are against the sale of bodies, but yet they turn around and then they say, uh, decriminalize sex work and recognize it as work. <laughs> uh, how different is the function of a labor broker to that of a pimp or a brothel? Very interesting. So when I was in New Zealand, I was there with Rachel Moran. Um, and we went, it was during the research for my book, so I think it was 2015. And we talked to women on the street, in, including one woman who was actually using a Zimmer frame to walk around. She was that disabled from prostitution. Um, and she could barely stand, but she said to me, look, post-decriminalisation, many of the women have moved indoors as you've said, but she said two really important things. One was there's always men that want to pick up women from the street because they're the most vulnerable, often uh, drug-abusing women, they're close to death, they, they basically can just do what they want with them and they don't want the hassle of having to go in, in, into a brothel, speak to a brothel owner, all of that. So they want street women. The second thing she said, and I've heard this from so many women in prostitution over the decades, is that the streets in some ways are safer because you can run away. And if you're in a brothel and that door is closed and that punter has paid for an hour or even half an hour of your time, he can do what he wants. The brothel owner is not going to protect that woman. And in, I saw that in Germany. In Munich, in the legal brothels, I was shown around the security systems. Yes, there are security cameras outside the doors. There are none inside the doors. 
and there were there were no women um who ever reported violence from the men despite the fact that many of them told me that there had been violence from but the men that other interesting thing to, you know arguing for prostitution to be work um i don't understand you know hawkers um you know, we have them all over the world in place. Those people who are selling informally alongside the streets, whether they are selling fruits or what. Yes. Those people are not workers. So if you are working in the street, you are selling your body according to them. You are doing what you, you, you like with your body. How then do you become a worker? Because a worker, from my understanding, is a person who reports to somebody who, who has a, a, an employment agreement. So there is no employment agreement for so-called sex workers in the streets. Not unless they have to go to a brothel, which which then translates to the fact that the, the this position is actually promoting the capitalization of, of women through brothel keepers and the empowerment of brothel keepers or you, you know the enrichment of brothel keepers. Of course, that's where the, that's where the money is. So what do we do? We mentioned briefly earlier the our support for the Nordic model or the abolitionist model, as I prefer it to be called. Because it's actually in place in countries. We actually now we're moving to towards calling it the Sankara model. Oh. Do you know Thomas Sankara? No. Oh, Thomas Sankara was um a president um from um Burkina Faso, uh-huh. and he was promoting this model. If you read anything, his speeches were for this model. Okay. So because a lot of the, the times we are accused of wanting to bring a model that was coined in Sweden, the West European colonialism, and we are wanting to bring it back to Africa. Well, in actual fact, we had an African leader that actually, you know, is for for, for this model. But not only that, Nelson Mandela had said yes. something as well. I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen that quote where, she, where he says, for every woman who um who who is forced to have unprotected sex because men demand it we have killed a woman i'm paraphrasing but mm-hmm. this but and then he said he goes on to say for every woman who has to sell sex we condemn to a life imprisonment yes and in fact i remember talking to members of the mandela government who said that he was always very keen to eradicate prostitution because he could see it was happening to the poorest women, to black women, and that this was exploitation, not not only by white men, but largely by white men. Yes. So, so, so Mandela was against this, and this democracy that we are enjoying in South Africa, or we are supposed to enjoy, Mandela fought for. And a lot of people, his legacy, what then happens to that? What happens to Thomas Sankara's legacy? Tell us about the model that we support. So the model that we support... Uh, seeks to criminalize all aspects of the prostitution system, meaning the pimping, brothel keeping, the purchase by punters, but decriminalize the person who is bought, sold, and exploited within the system, but also, the, and we call it a model, more, more than a law, because on the other side, a, lo- a law will just be a law, an act. This is what will happen if you do this. But with this model, we also seek uh, to, to create the exit programs fully funded by governments to say we need to assist these women when when they present or express their wish to exit uh, the prostitution system. So what are you doing now? What's your next plan? So we're here in in Ireland meeting with Rachel Moran and 
planning our next moves in the abolitionist movement, aren't we? Yeah. What are we up to next? So um, the, for the next 12 months, I can commit, but I can be here to develop a plan with Rachel Moran, uh, with, his, with, her, with, with her assistance, um, to take it back to South Africa to, and implement. So the very first th thing, okay, so South Africa is, is quite, um, you know, interesting right now politically because a lot of things are going to be happening. We ha have um, the ANC's elective conference approaching in December, so everybody is speaking. We are seeking to then um, start actively, you know, lobby for the support. Um, ideally, we would want uh, South Africa to adopt this law within the next year. But um, I would say we are making headwaves because we are having organizations that initially, under them being misled by sweat back then, have, have uh, publicly supported, um, you know, the decriminalization of prostitution and its recognition as well, going back to the table and consulting with people. And this instance, also consulting with organizations such as us um, and, or, and even some Christian organizations that are against the decriminalization of the prostitution model. So we are lobbying those people and we are giving them information, showing them evidence that prostitution can never be made safe. Because I normally ask in South Africa, so if you decriminalize tomorrow and you want to make prostitution safe, are you going to assign a police officer to each and every single prostituted person in this country when we are not even able to, to deal with gender-based violence and femicide in that country? Are you going to assign? And the second thing is that people normally say that our model will push prostitution underground as if, if we decriminalize tomorrow, people will start having sex anywhere here. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but the, the negotiation might happen openly, but the act will never. And remember, these men are, are reputable men. I mm -hmm. say this to you. These are men with... They don't want to be known to, to, to be punters. In any case, so they will never publicly purchase sex. It's not like it's going to be like a pick and pay store where you go and pick up a, a bottle of water. They, they they will never do so publicly because they they always want to be discreet. Yes, they are married men, and we are wanting to lobby women and ask them, do you want your husbands to to purchase sex? And I was asking somebody actually who's very prominent and very vocal about um, decriminalization who, interesting enough, had her husband cheat on her, and that was a problem for her. Right now, they are separated, but she's promoting the decriminalization of prostitution and its recognition as work. Who is she then? I mean, these people are hypocrites. Of course. Thank you, Mickey, for a fascinating conversation, and um, we'll look forward to getting the law over the line in South Africa. We'll have a big party in Cape Town. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we must, we must actually. That was Mickey. I want to read you that quote that Mickey mentioned from Nelson Mandela about his views on the sex trade. He said, For every woman and girl violently attacked, we reduce our humanity. For every woman forced into unprotected sex because men demand this, we destroy dignity and pride. Every woman who has to sell her life for sex, we condemn to a lifetime in prison. For every moment we remain silent, we conspire against our women. For every woman infected by HIV, we destroy a generation. <laughs>